Hello and welcome to another discussion on The Rational National, this time about the Canadian election. I'm joined now by Christo Avalis. He's a historian and co-host of the podcast Left Turn Canada. Christo, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. So an election coming up next week. <laughs> I, I already voted. <laughs> uh, I wonder if you voted. I'll, uh, you can tell me that. But um, So we're going to get into the discussion here on in particular, how the NDP is doing as well as you're an NDP member, and and I, I support the NDP in this election. But um, let's first start with the calling of this election. So a lot of people, I think, I don't know, most people maybe, feel that there was no need for an election right now. But Trudeau called the snap election with the intention, I think, clearly of hoping he would secure up a majority based on polling, how he was doing at the time. It looked like he'd be able to hold or potentially win a uh, a majority. But that's clearly gone to the side. I'll get to some polling in a second detailing that. But what are your thoughts on Trudeau calling this, uh, this election and maybe how that, that might impact some of uh, voters? Well, I mean, the conventional wisdom was that it wasn't going to hurt him because all of the provincial elections, most of them, had resulted in a victory for the incumbent party. You know, in B.C. there was an election called it resulted in a NDP majority. In New Brunswick, uh, a conservative minority government turned into a majority. In uh, Newfoundland, the liberals picked up seats, won a majority. Um, there was that election in um, Nova Scotia, which resulted in a change, but there wasn't actually a ton of voter movement. And it wasn't necessarily clear that people were mad about the pandemic and that being the reason why it seemed to be issues around healthcare and housing and people just wanted a new government. And so, in a lot of ways, people just expected that it wouldn't make a big difference. But I think a lot of people really thought to themselves and said, look, it's, it, this government is not three years old. It's not three and a half years old. It's not like Trudeau had to either call it now or six months from now, like with John Horgan, where, you know, it, yeah, he could have left it a little bit longer, but he really had to go soon. Um, and it was also the case that none of the legislation he was running on and has been running on would require a new parliament to pass. Because if he wanted to pass his childcare policy, he could do that with NDP support, likely block support as well. If he wanted to pass tax cuts to the rich, he could do that with conservative support. If he wanted to do, you know, anything to do with like LGBTQ rights, he could do that with the NDP support and likely the block support as well. And so when you add all this up together, I think a lot of people thought to themselves, okay, um, I'm not necessarily 100% against a pandemic election, but I have to say to myself, like, does, did, did, does this one make sense, right? Given yeah. that he's not actually running on anything that you need to do. And he's coming out with policies like paid sick days, like when those could have been passed in that last parliament during the pandemic where workers needed paid sick days. And I think it came off as overly cynical, even in comparison to the uh, early provincial elections we saw. Yeah, and I think we're seeing the results of that in some of the, the polling right now. So a recent Nanos poll that I just saw today uh, from September 14th shows the Liberals at 31%, a change of minus two from the last election. The Conservatives at 31%, a change of minus three from the last election. The NDP up five at 21%, a change from the last election. And PPC at 7%, up five. Bloc Quebecois at 6% down two. And Green Party at 4% down three. So 
let's f- first let discuss the, the the top two parties here. So the Liberals and Conservatives potentially down at maybe the lowest point, uh, at least in in recent memory uh, during a a, a uh, federal election. What are your thoughts on this? Are people now waking up to the reality that maybe there is a third option out there and maybe they should begin trying to grow the support of the NDP and, you know, I guess in some cases the PPC if they can win a seat. But people are clearly uh, a little frustrated with the the two major parties. And, um, yeah, what are your thoughts on on why that is? Yeah, I mean— you know, there's been exceptional periods, like when the conservative party split into the progressive conservatives and like the reform party. Uh, and the, of course there was the 2011 election where the NDP finished second, but in general, it's like through broad Canadian history, the liberal and conservative parties could be expected to get well over 70%, sometimes 80% of the vote, like between them. And, you know, they would have most people move between those two parties, Mm -hmm. but in this election, it's like they, they they might struggle to crack 60% or certainly get like two thirds of the electorate. And I think it shows that a lot of people are frustrated with the status quo, whether they're frustrated on the left or on the right, they don't feel that the two big parties, you know, are representing their interests, right? And so I think a lot of people are looking to different options. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons why it's looking like a minority government and one of the reasons why, you know, the, the the liberals and conservatives haven't really been able to break away from one another, because while, you know, earlier in the election, it was it was true that the liberals were flirting with majority numbers. They were in the mid 30s, way ahead of the conservatives, or they were in the high 30s, five or six points ahead of the conservatives. Those are the kind of numbers that you need to see for a majority government, usually in federal politics. Mm-hmm. And so um that movement from the liberals back to the conservatives sort of reverted to that tie. I don't know if that's necessarily a sign that you're going to see a fundamental realignment because first past the post still kind of ensures that the liberals and conservatives are going to get like three quarters of all the seats in parliament, even if they're only getting like 60%, 55% of the vote. But it does show a dissatisfaction with the status quo, you know, whether that manifests in uh, uh, in parliament is, is hard to say, but but people want something different and, and the main parties aren't giving it to them. So on that point, what do you think it would take or in or is it possible for the NDP to at some point form a government in a first past the post system? Do you think it's possible? What would it take for that to happen? Yeah, I, I do think it's possible. I think like in, in, in 2011, they came up short. But it clearly showed that they that they can do it right, that they can build a coalition. It's going to take greater regional strength. The NDP has got to find some way to win big seats in Quebec again. Like they have to do that. I don't think the NDP can win a majority government or or a government without some significant Quebec support. It doesn't necessarily need to be like the 50 some seats they won in, in Quebec in in 2011 but they got to be able to win you know a couple dozen seats at least and then also build strength in atlantic canada and then regain a foothold in like the downtown core of toronto Mm. but really i mean you can see it happen where you know if um you know strategic voting remains a reality for a lot of people if the ndp can assert itself as the non-conservative option and and be able to build that broad coalition it can certainly happen one challenge is going to be, like here in Ontario, um, is the vote efficiency there, right? 
one challenge in Ontario for the Ontario NDP in the last election was that there was a worry that there wasn't going to be enough votes for them in suburbia. So the NDP does need to look at how they can win votes in places like the 905, basically the suburban outskirts around Toronto, which has been a uh, you know a traditional weak spot for the party. Uh, if they can do that, however, they can build a broader coalition of victory. Yeah, and the question is as well, I mean, can they do that without compromising who they are? I mean, as we've seen, when the NDP have formed government at, at, at the provincial level, whether it's Ontario, Alberta, BC, there tends to be this this move towards neoliberalism once they gain power, which is, I think, disappointing. And and people that are, you know, supporters of the NDP are, I, I imagine at times, worried that if a federal party, uh, NDP, were to take power at some point, would they actually stick to their values or would they try to, you know, appeal to those those middle-of-the-road, uh, I guess, for lack of a better term, uh, voters, the, the more conservative voters, by being more like the Liberal Party, which then, in essence, would kind of defeat the purpose of them yeah. uh, forming government. So do you, do you think that's, a, you know, a, a worry? I mean, that was probably what Tal Mulcair was trying to do, yeah. right? Like, <laughs> yeah. and, 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 you know, in a different context, it might have worked, right? Like, uh, if, th- if he was slightly more likable, if things went a little different, if that election was shorter, Tom Mulcair might have been able to win a minority government. There were times in that election where the NDP was polling in first, even during the writ. Um, it's hard to say exactly what it'll be like, because in many ways there are still distinctions between NDP government neoliberalism and liberal and conservative party neoliberalism. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the things Bob Ray passed, like pay equity, still really haven't been brought back. Um, you know, the NDP governments in, in the West you know, nationalized telecom companies and auto insurance companies, something that you don't often see in provinces without NDP governments. And mm-hmm. so there is a difference, but it would be a question of how much does like running a capitalist G7 country constrain you, right? Mm-hmm. Like how, how, how bold can you be while still baked into the system? Conversely, One argument you could make is that the federal government has more power around things like taxation and spending and debt. And so it's hypothetically the case that while, you know, provincial governments are more constrained in their ability to, like, spend money, Mm. the federal government isn't as much. And they may be able to do some rather important things um, around that, which is why you've been seeing Singh talk for talk about significant tax increases on the on the on the rich and wealthy yeah i think that's a great point now let's change a bit to uh other parties here so the conservatives i've heard a lot of fake working class appeal from aaron o'toole um (laughs) whether it's uh on pensions on unions what are your thoughts on you know are do you think people are able to decipher the fact that he is full of crap or is this messaging is it working on people um I, i mean you're seeing i think it's I think it's brilliant of him to try and do this, to try and and go after, try and pretend to be the, the you know the working class voice. When clearly, based on their history, based on what is actually in his platform, that's not the case. But by faking yeah. that language enough, do you think it may actually help him? I mean, I think he's. I don't know if it's ultimately going to work, but he's running the kind of campaign that I think could succeed. Right? Like, it's not guaranteed to. But it's the sort of campaign that I think the conservatives needed to try to run, which is to say to, to, to at least feign like we are not that different from the Liberal Party. 
We are really moderating on these social issues. We still care about workers. We care about uh, women's rights, the LGBTQ community. We care about, you know, the, the religious and ethnic diversity of this country, and we celebrate it. And, and, and that's the kind of thing that is essential to getting those, like, suburban voters in Toronto and in other urban areas that the liberals in recent years have just mopped up on. Right. And those are the swing voters because the rural voters, by and large, vote conservative. The big city voters, people in the downtown cores, will usually vote NDP or liberal. And so those suburban areas are, are like the swing swing ridings, similar in the United States in many ways, where Biden was able to, uh, you know, to, to pick up back some of these suburban, smaller town areas mm-hmm. uh, from Trump. And, and that's something that O'Toole is trying to do. But I don't know if it's working for a few reasons. One, people don't trust him necessarily. His approval ratings aren't any higher than Andrew Shear's. He's polling a little bit lower than Andrew Shear was. Um, and it seems to be that while he has been able to bring liberal votes to him, he's also lost some to the PPC, mm-hmm. right? Because if you look at the polling early in the campaign, liberals started crying about strategic voting. Right. The Canadian, the, the, you have to vote liberal to stop Aaron O'Toole. But yeah. what the graphs were clearly showing was that as soon as the election was called, the NDP was more more or less steady in the high teens, low 20s. But like a bunch of liberal voters swung to O'Toole. And that's where most of the movement has been, except for maybe, you know, a PPC rise. And so it's he's trying to walk that knife's edge. And I don't know if it's going to be quite enough. Although, um, if, if you told him six weeks ago when the liberals were facing a majority victory, you know, maybe he's been successful at, you know, stopping that. And I mean, his policies, they're, they're incoherent because that, that like worker representation on company boards, that's a good policy. I, I don't actually disagree with that. But then he still supports like a lot of union busting measures, mm-hmm. like getting rid of dues checkoffs and things like that. So he wants to give workers representation, but he wants to destroy unions, which are the main form of worker representation, or at least weaken unions. And he says yeah. he supports workers, but then he doesn't support the national child care program, which is one of the most important things that working women, working families, but working women in particular need to you know, fully participate in the economy. And so I don't know if the, 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 the hodgepodge is, is fully convincing people, although he hasn't necessarily blown it either. Yeah. And as you mentioned on the, the, the cultural issues, the more social issues, he is trying to sound a little more like the liberals, which I think is, has given now a clear opportunity to the PPC, the people's party of Canada. And you're seeing their, their rise here. So they're at uh, 7% right now in this, this Nanos research poll up 5% from uh, the last election. And, you know, Maxime Bernier, the leader of the People's Party, failed to win his seat last time. I kind of thought at that point they're going to, you know, fizzle away. But they're back and stronger than ever. And I, I drove through uh, Oshawa, which is a suburb of, of Toronto, about an hour out of Toronto, um, a couple weeks ago. And I saw PPC signs all over the place. Like, it was it was a little uh, a little striking. So what are your thoughts on on how they've been able to sort of, you know, grow their support? And do you think... There's a potential here for maybe Maxime Bernier to win his seat or, or someone else to to to, to uh, become an MP in the People's Party. And do you think they have any ability to sustain the support based on how they're going right now? I mean, yeah, 
I mean, I wasn't necessarily 100% convinced that they were like dead in the water after Bernier lost in, in, in 2019, he lost his seat. But it, it did seem like they had some excitement and momentum right when he first launched, but it, they just weren't able to convert it. And I think that a couple things worked in their favor this time. One, um, there was the, um, the, the, the if, if only in rhetoric, the shift of Aaron O'Toole's conservative party. And the shift of Aaron O'Toole's conservative party to be like less controversial on guns and gays and, and, and women's rights and pro-choice, anti-choice debates and all that stuff mm -hmm. um, gave more room on the right. So like Maxime Bernier and PPC operatives could like take those more right-wing positions and then not really have anyone else competing with them for those voters. And another thing has to be has to be COVID. Like COVID yeah, changed the game. For sure. Uh, it saved the PPC probably because it they are the only party. I know there are like fringe elements in the greens maybe or whatever, but they're the only party that's like 100% like COVID denialism. Yeah. They got like the anti-maskers. They got all of the people that are like, I don't trust the science. They have all of the people that didn't support any of the shutdowns. Yeah. You add all of that up, you know, the mainline conservative party, I mean, Aaron O'Toole hasn't been as strong as he needs to be, but he has removed certain people from his caucus like Derek Sloan for being absolutely bonkers. And so his party has taken a largely pro-science position, if not fully. And so it's created this, this, this conglomeration of, are you tired of the conservatives being far too uh, towards the center? Are you tired of the government imposing its will on you with this pandemic? Um, join the PPC. And I think that's why they've gotten a lot of support from the conservatives, but not exclusively from the conservatives, because anti-vaccination views are, are, are more prevalent in the conservative movement, but they're not exclusive to it. Yeah, and we've seen that, I think, with the drop of the, of the Green Party. I don't think it's just because of Annemie Paul and her leadership. There have been... There's elements, as you mentioned, the fringe elements of the Green Party of members that are very, you know, anti-vax. They they question the which, you know, a lot of this, a lot of the anti-vax stuff from the I guess the so-called left are people who have a a honest, you know, a, an honest mistrust of big pharma, which I think is is correct in a, in a lot of ways. But then they apply that to everything. <laughs> they apply that to every, you know, every, uh, which, which includes vaccines. So yeah. clearly there is that that disconnect from reality there that has now benefited the PPC. In, in I mean, if, if that's your, if that's the issue you care most about is is the vaccine, the vaccine mandates, then you're going to be more willing, more open to support the PPC and completely ignore, you know, the racist, bigoted elements of the PPC yeah. if you're that kind of voter. So yeah. Getting to the Green Party, I mean, what do you think about their complete drop? Like, what do you think has led to this? And and what do you see as a Green Party? Like, what's the Green Party going to be moving forward potentially after this election? I mean, I think there's a bunch of reasons. I do think they've lost some people to the PPC. But most of it, it seems like they've mostly gone to the NDP. Um, I, I think that's probably the case. If you look historically and recently at, like, second choice support, like, who do Greens have as their second choice? Um, it's mostly NDP and then liberal with a decent amount of conservatives too, but mm. like mostly NDP and liberal. And so I think that's one of the reasons why the NDP has made gains in this election is that they've taken some of those voters. Um, it's they, they've really, uh, it, it's just been a mess. Yeah. It's been a mess. Like I noted this 
you know, back on, on YouTube and in my other, my writing and stuff that, you know, when, when, when Elizabeth May left, it was going to be a major make or break moment for the Green Party. Because whatever you say about Elizabeth May, if you like her or you hate her, she was able to take like a nothing party and win some seats, not just in BC, but even one in Fredericton. And then because of that success, I, I, I honestly think that that's the reason you've seen green success provincially in like New Brunswick and PEI, and a little bit here in Ontario, so yeah. a lot in BC as well. Um, and when she left, it was like, okay, so what's the party vision going to be? And you had the Lascaris vision, which was like, you know, green socialism, eco-socialism. Mm -hmm. And then you had Annamie Paul, who was more or less going to be like the continuation of like the centrist Green Party, you know, on like probably a little bit more to the left of the liberals, but but not by much. Um, and I don't think that inspired people. And I, I just clearly the Israel-Palestine thing just tore them apart, right? Yeah. Like the response to that with Jenica Atwin, where her staff attacked one of their MPs and then she didn't defend the MP. I don't yeah. know. I don't know where they go from this. I think that there's a real risk that they could be reduced to one seat. I don't see May losing her seat, but I do think Paul Manley is in trouble. Not necessarily any fault of his own. It's just the polling's really bad for them. And the NDP's polling quite well in BC. And those combinations could actually flip that seat back to back to the NDP. Um, and yeah. where they go from here, I'm not sure. I mean, they could. Um, maybe maybe this is another shot for Lascaris to run, uh, who didn't finish all that far behind Paul. But it could be, you know, the slow decline of the Green Party, and maybe they 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 kind of lose relevance as a federal party. That could happen too, because um, who knows what happens after Elizabeth May retires? Is that a Green Party seat or is that an Elizabeth May seat? Mm. And then do they have no seats? I don't know. Yeah, and with Enemy Paul still running in Toronto Center, where... yeah, that was a bad idea. It's, <laughs> it's dumb, right? Yeah, like, she's like it's just the the amount of liberal support there. Who's it? Uh, yeah. Marcy Lynn. Yeah, I, no, I mean, what they like, should have done is they should have like, what they should have done. And this is on May. I, I think a little bit too. It should, May should have stepped down and campaigned with Annamie Paul in her riding in a by-election where you would have a bunch of energized green support. Turnout would be low in general because it's a by-election. Um, and you'd probably, she'd probably win the seat. And then her rule over the green party, her like leadership over it, would be less questionable mm -hmm. if she won the seat and you wouldn't have the former leader getting a higher profile than her. I think that's probably the best move because Toronto Centre is not is not a a, 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 a it's not it's not really a winnable riding, right? Like yeah. unless the Liberals really tank in the last few days, I don't think she's gonna win it. No. Yeah, and then at that point, you know, obviously her leadership has to has to be thrown into question again, and is it going to be yep. another leadership race? And if that happens, I hope Demetrius Karras wins. I know we're getting ahead of ourselves here, but yep. uh, I was a big supporter of his in the last leadership race, and I'm glad he's he has stayed on good terms with the party uh, so far. So I think he's doing that, you know, knowing that he could potentially be in that position again. Yeah. So it's it's uh yeah, when it comes to the Greens, who knows what's possible? Uh, last thing here, um. Let's just discuss, you know, I guess your overall thoughts on on how you think this election's gone so far in terms of the the uh, the campaigning by the NDP. Do you think they're getting the messaging out the way they should be getting it out in terms of especially addressing wealth inequality, the housing crisis? I know is a big one for a lot of people our age. Um, and, you know, 
don't want to get too deep into predictions, but if you want to make a prediction or, or give your thoughts on what could happen, like the, the potential outcomes here uh, in this election, share those those thoughts as well. Yeah, I mean, I think the campaign's been pretty decent from Singh. I think at times he's needed to be a little bit more clear. Like he needs to be clear about what his position's going to be on the pipeline. Um, yeah. Is he going to keep it or sell it? Honestly, I can see it both ways. I mean, you can say, look, uh, we never should have bought it, but like, am I just going to commit to selling something without being able to see the full information? I can't make that commitment now. But you know, I would have never bought it. That's like that's a clearer answer yeah, than he's given. Absolutely, he should say um, that. I, I think that on housing, none of the parties, that includes the NDP, are really wrestling with like the the, the existential question. Yeah. And I just I don't know what the answer is on that. Like, if I'm being honest, like like I'm a homeowner, um, and I would happily take less equity in my house to like ensure that younger other younger people and people younger than me have the opportunity to enter the housing market mm -hmm. and I would support public housing. But it seems like, like the homeowner class is so politically entrenched and they're not exclusive to one party that no one wants to piss off like the homeowning class. And so whether it's like no one wants to invest in public housing because the, the people that vote and have money and donate don't use it or whether it's no one wants to have any sort of policy that's going to make houses cheaper because that means they, that their houses will be less valuable, it's it's a really big issue. I mean, the NDP has good things around building uh, affordable public housing, but no party, I think, is really wrestling. Saying with having a capital gains tax on selling of the uh, of homes, which doesn't exist on the primary home, mm. um, but maybe it should. Maybe it should. I don't know. Mm. Um Singh has done a good job, I think, on 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 taxing the rich. He's been clear on that, yeah. which is like uh, before COVID, but especially during it, we've been plagued by massive inequality. Uh, millions have suffered while a few have gotten very wealthy or continue to get wealthier. And we need to, you know, ensure that coming out of the pandemic that the rich pay for the recovery. And I think it was quite telling that when the parliamentary budget office came out with their reports, they said, sure, the NDP is going to increase spending by $200 billion for all the social programs, dental care, pharma care, child care, uh, reconciliation. Uh, the, the, you know, it's not a full Green New Deal. It's not as ambitious as we would like. But, you know, the, the, the NDP's version of a Green New Deal, it's going to cost a lot of money. But they're going to raise $170 billion or so in new taxes wealth tax, income taxes, corporate taxes. And it, it leads to a situation where they're actually going to run lower deficits yeah. than the liberals and conservatives because they're not giving away money to corporations, uh, to the fossil fuel industry and things of that sort. And yeah. I don't know if that's necessarily going to convince voters. I don't know if like you're going to see a 72-hour a surge for Singh, but you know he is polling quite well. Like People need to remember that you know, before Jack Layton's 2011, you know, big result and, and Mulcair winning a bunch of seats still uh, on the decline, but he still won a, a good amount of seats in that election. You know, Mulcair didn't crack 20%. You mm -hmm. know, he didn't get, the NDP has only gotten over 20%, I think two, maybe three times in Canadian history. I know in 2011 they did, I think in 1988 they did as well. But, you know, if Singh really is polling at 20, 21 percent and he finishes with that result, that's one of the better results for the party in history. Yeah. So one last thing here, uh, the media's coverage. So I haven't paid 
too close attention. I mean, I watched the debate. Uh, the one question about housing to Jagmeet Singh, I thought was hilarious to try yeah. and equate yeah. the homeowners with the people that have no homes. But yeah. um, what, what what are your thoughts on on the media so far? And anything that stand out, anything stand out to you during this this campaign in terms of how they've covered certain issues or certain parties? What are your thoughts on how the media has covered this election? I mean. It hasn't been great, but I don't think it's been more egregious than other elections yeah. either, right? <laughs> like, I agree that that question where it's basically like you have to choose either homeowners or people that don't own homes. And it's like, <laughs> first of all, I get it. There, There is a certain zero sum. Like, if you make it more affordable, it will be less profitable for homeowners. But, but they're already so profitable. Like, it's just it's well, so, exactly, so right? ridiculous. That's the argument I made, right? Yeah. Like, like oh, you're, you're going to sell your house that you bought for 300000 for 700 instead of eight. Oh, yeah. poor you. But the result is that millions of people or hundreds of thousands of people now have affordable housing. That's a fair deal. And I don't think we should be afraid to say it. Um, I definitely think you've seen some BS with the coverage. Like when the NDP announced their, 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 their costed plan, all of the headlines emphasized the high ticket price, none of which mentioned the party running lower deficits than either the liberals or conservatives. So just general like right wing like mm -hmm. effery, right? You know yeah. what I mean? But like, um, in general, I think it's been pretty decent. I thought the, uh, the debates were, were, were the questions were poignant, like they were pointed. Um, I don't know if I've seen anything that's really deeply concerned me in, in, in that way, but mm -hmm. other than what is the traditional overemphasis on, uh, you know, this is, you have two choices and only two choices, yeah. uh, you know, that sort of rhetoric. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Christo, thanks again for uh, coming on. Of course, historian and co-host of the podcast Left Turn Canada. Check it out. Look it up. If you want to, more about this uh, this election and everything going on in Canada, thanks again for coming on. Um, give us your uh, you know your Twitter, your website, where people can find you. Yeah, just uh, Christo Avalise, uh, you know, <clears throat> on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube here as well. If you just search that, you'll find it. Great, Christo. Thanks again for coming on the show. Thanks.